Well, sisters and brothers in Christ, if you are a little sister or brother in Christ, uh, if you are a child, we have uh, Miss Kristen and Mrs. Crispin back there ready for you. So if you want to head back there now, you may. And as they are are heading back there, I want to make one quick announcement, which is um, that next week... Um, we have Marilyn Borst who is going to be here, and she's going to be uh, talking about good news from hard places. She's going to be uh, talking here during Sunday morning services, but also afterwards there's going to be a lunch that I encourage you to go to. Marilyn's a, a pretty remarkable uh, woman. She takes um, groups over to places like Iraq and, and, uh, and Syria and Egypt, um, places where you know most of us would not voluntarily go, um, but she does so for a couple of reasons. But one of the main reasons, I think, is, or one of the main things that comes out of this is that the Christians who are there are able to be reminded that they are not alone. Uh, and that the people across, the brothers and sisters across the world have not forgotten them. And if you want to hear kind of from her perspective what's going on in different parts of the world and the way that Jesus is at work and what people are suffering with, I would encourage you to be here next Sunday and then even perhaps to, um, to be here for the lunch where, where she will go into even more detail about the work that she's doing and what she's discovering. So I, I invite you to that next Sunday. All right, sisters and brothers, we are continuing in our series of Daniel. And uh, what we did last week, I just want to give you a brief recap of of the scripture passage last week. um, Because it's kind of connected pretty intricately with this week's. We are looking at the fourth chapter. So we looked at the first 18 verses last week. And what happened was King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a a dream that terrifies him. It's a dream about a, a, a powerful, a tall, a flourishing tree that can be seen from the ends of the earth and all of a sudden the tree there's a voice that says chop the tree down and so sure enough the tree is chopped down and then the dream goes on to talk about things that are not pleasant at all and so the king awakens and he is afraid and so he calls in the interpreters uh, the Chaldeans the diviners the enchanters and they can't they don't know they say we don't know what this dream means and so finally then he calls in Daniel Daniel the one who has already interpreted one of his dreams back in chapter 2 and so he he calls him in and and Daniel then is just about to give the interpretation of the dream and that's where we left off, I know that many of you have had sleepless nights wondering how it all ends. You get to find that out today. And so with that then, let me warn you, this is a lengthy passage, so make sure that you're awake and pay attention to verses 19 through 37. Here's how it goes. Then Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar, was severely distressed for a while. His thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation terrify you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew great and strong so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which provided food for all under which animals of the field lived and in whose branches the birds of the air had nests, it is you, O king. 
And you have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and reached, reaches to heaven. And your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven. And saying cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave its stump and roots in the ground. With a band of iron and bronze in the grass of the field. And let him be bathed with the dew of heaven. And let his lot be with the animals of the field. Until seven times. Times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And it is a decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord the King. You shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar. To you it is declared, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven away from human society, and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like oxen, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails became like birds' claws. When the period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing as he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my lords sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are truth, and his ways are justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, we gather this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. We are a people, Lord, who come to hear from you. 
And so I pray that this morning, Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So before we get started this, uh, this Sunday morning, for those of you who weren't here and wonder what in the world did Jerry preach about last week, I know that this is cons- constantly a thought for those of you who miss uh, a Sunday. Uh, let me just briefly remind you of what it was that we said last Sunday, which is that the reality is oftentimes when we are flourishing, when we are doing well, when we are successful, when our accounts look Good. There are times when we think, well, those things must be happening because we are following the ways of God. And sometimes we just think if things are going well, it's a quid pro quo, that everything is going well, and that, that we are really following God exactly as God desires. And one of the things that we said was, well, that's not always the case. In fact, There are many times when the more successful we are, the more we are flourishing, the better we are doing, how it is with great frequency that in the midst of that may be the very same time that we are turning away from God. And there are, of course, many reasons for that. But but what we wanted to talk about last week is one of the reasons for that is this, is that the more successful you are, the more likely it is that people will find it difficult to tell you hard truths that they know you do not want to hear. Right? We, we, we talked about how, how the dream, right? There's this dream. So you have these diviners and enchanters. They have one job, remember? And their job is to interpret dreams. And so they are listening to this king who is powerful and mighty and flourishing. And he is telling them about a tree that is mighty and powerful and flourishing and is going to be chopped down. And not one of those expert interpreters has any idea of what what that dream means. As I said, these are either the dumbest interpreters of all time, or they know exactly what the dream means, and they do not have the courage to tell the truth to this man. The reality is, those whom you owe a certain amount of allegiance, those whom you admire, those who can chop your head off, oftentimes you may not be as willing to tell them the truth. But not only that, we said that those who are flourishing, they have this great opportunity with great frequency to be able to never be challenged, which most of us would like. And so here you have this king who has all this power. He can call in all these interpreters, right, that he's paying to do this work. He could call all of them in, but he knows that there is actually one interpreter, Daniel, who is better than all of them. But he doesn't call him in first. And I think that the reason probably why he doesn't is because of the fact that he knows that Daniel is going to tell him the truth and he doesn't really want the truth. And so he goes in another place hoping that one of these other interpreters will tell him exactly what he wants to hear. But none of them have the courage to do so. And then we began to talk about Daniel. And the reality is that Daniel, who the king himself says has some kind of special spirit from the gods, Nebuchadnezzar says, that perhaps that special spirit is not just simply the ability to interpret dreams, but is also the willingness to have the courage to tell Nebuchadnezzar exactly what that dream was. 
The reality, of course, is that those of us who long to be truth-tellers, those of us who long to be able to have the courage to do so and to be with those and to tell an honest word, that you always have to have the willingness to be vulnerable first and foremost. And only Daniel, of all the interpreters, only Daniel had the courage to say, I am going to tell you what you want to hear even if I don't want to. Which is exactly then where we are today. I hope that you could at least pay attention enough for the beginning of the reading of Daniel 4. Because there it's very clear from the beginning just how much anguish Daniel had when he was going to tell the king exactly what his dream was about. Daniel was severely distressed, we are told. He had a a great amount of anguish. It's interesting because this is not Daniel who's all of a sudden saying, finally, I get to nail the narcissistic Nebuchadnezzar. I get to tell him everything that he is doing wrong. I get to tell him that he is going to be chopped down. This person who is clearly, it seems, as we read other parts of the scripture, who is clearly oppressing those who who should not have been oppressed, who is clearly not caring about the the poor. Finally, (laughs) this is going to be awesome. I get to tell him exactly what's going to happen to him because of the fact that he is not following God. This is going to be amazing. Daniel doesn't do that. There is this sense almost of pain that Daniel has in telling Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. Now you could just be saying to yourself, well that's just because he's scared. And I understand that. Except for the fact in two chapters we will see the most famous of Daniel of course is Daniel in the lion's den. And if you remember that story, uh, well, we'll talk about it here in three weeks. If you remember that story, of course, Daniel doesn't seem to care that much about his life, at least not as much as he does about honoring God. So I don't really think that's what it is, nor do I think that Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar through rose-colored glasses. I mean, Daniel, the only reason Daniel is there and is not at home is because of Nebuchadnezzar, because of the Babylonian Empire, right? He could go home. Daniel has seen his friends, perhaps his family, killed because of the Babylonian Empire. He knows just how bad it is. And yet, Daniel, still when he approaches Nebuchadnezzar, he does so in this way that you get a sense that he continues to have compassion for Nebuchadnezzar. It brings him no great joy to go off on this person who is being so unjust. And I think perhaps that says something to us today. This is a topic that I bring up from time to time because of the fact that it is still absolutely prevalent, which is that in our society right now that seems to be so volatile, in which there seems to be so much anger, so much righteous indignation, one of the things that I oftentimes kind of observe is the fact that when we are going off on those with whom we disagree, that's exactly what we are doing. We are going off in such a way that it is as if the people with whom we disagree are not human at all. It brings us no pain. In fact, you almost see the smile and that righteous indignation of saying, ha ha, I am going to either Facebook post you out of life and you're going to change your mind because of this, right? Or I'm going to shame you. I'm going to do whatever I can just so that I can kind of get this off of my chest and it's going to be so much fun. Daniel 
Daniel sits there and it is only out of pain and out of a love for Nebuchadnezzar that he tells him the truth. And I always think that before confronting someone with whom we disagree, we should ask, does this cause me a certain amount of pain when I tell this person something? There is a humility that comes out of that, a sense of, because I think most of us should know before we confront someone, that we also are very likely to make mistakes ourselves. As Ephesians says so clearly, we are called to speak the truth in love. There is no joy in your love. I heard that. I want you to know that. To speak the truth in love. What difference might it make if we as the church would say that we are going to serve as the example of what it looks like. Not to fail to tell the truth, but to do so in such a way where it is clear that we continue to love and care even for those with whom we may disagree. And Daniel, he tells the truth. And what is the truth that he needs to tell Nebuchadnezzar? Well, one of the things that you should know is that this empire of Babylon is pretty impressive. When Nebuchadnezzar begins to talk about, you know, uh, how great Babylon is, he wasn't lying. Uh, one, uh, one historian, Stephen Miller, he kind of, he describes Babylon in this way. Let's look what he says. He says, Babylon was a rectangularly shaped city surrounded by a broad and deep water-filled moat. And then, by an intricate system of double walls, the first double wall system encompassed the main city. Its inner wall was 21 feet thick and reinforced with defense towers at 60-foot intervals, while the outer wall was 11 feet in width and also had watchtowers. Later, Nebuchadnezzar added another double wall system, an outer wall 25 feet thick and an inner wall 23 feet thick east of the Euphrates that ran the incredible distance of 17 miles and was wide enough at the top for chariots to pass. The height of the walls is not known, but the Ishtar Gate, you guys remember the Ishtar Gate was here last Sunday, if you were here. The last two Sundays, it was right here. It was this big gate that we had. Now, it didn't quite go up this high. It was up 40 feet high. And the walls would have approximated this size. A 40-foot wall would have been a formidable barrier for enemy soldiers. What's the point? The point is this, that Babylon was impressive. And I don't think that what God was doing was saying, well, you should not be the king of of a nation that is this powerful. Instead, it seems to me, what Daniel points out so well, and what we see in Nebuchadnezzar, was that the issue is that that Nebuchadnezzar failed to see who God actually was. We, we, we hear it here. Maybe you'll remember a couple months ago we, we talked about the parable of the rich fool. And this was a, a rich man who had all kinds of money. And, and, and it comes from Luke and it just said this. He looks over all that he has and he says, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. It's eerily similar to what we hear Nebuchadnezzar say. He looks over his city and he says, Is this not magnificent, Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my power and for my glorious majesty? 
Now, first of all, clearly it doesn't seem that he's saying anything about the fact that he could do nothing if he hadn't been created by the Almighty. But secondly, someone pointed out, and I think rightfully so, can you imagine if you'd been standing, if you were out there on the roof with him, maybe you had a wheelbarrow full of bricks that you were taking to build on, and you're walking by him, and all of a sudden you overhear Nebuchadnezzar say, can you look at this amazing city that I have built? Wouldn't you kind of drop that wheelbarrow and look over and just wonder, did I hear correctly Now, he wouldn't have said this lest his head be chopped off. But don't you know internally he would be saying, are you kidding me? The the city that you built? I, I mean, I didn't see you hauling any bricks. I didn't see you kind of being the master architect for this. I didn't see you making any bricks or kind of putting things together. I didn't see you, you know, trying to figure out the engineering aspect of this. What are you talking about? But Nebuchadnezzar, in his success, it has distanced him not only from God, but from his ability to see the role that the community has placed around or played around him to put him where he is. See, this, was a, this is what pride will do. It will always separate you from God and from others. I have a pastor I know who's, who, who's done a pretty good job of kind of climbing the church ladder, if you will. I'm not judging him uh, uh, too much, but, but, but he's done a great job of that. And he is, I want to be very clear, he's a very good preacher. And I think he's, I, my guess is he's a very good pastor. But several years ago now, I was sitting at a table, not with him, but with his wife and a few other pastors. And we were sitting there talking about looking for new churches. And, and, and in the midst of that conversation, uh, she said, well, you know, after the first uh, pastor, after the first church that he applied for, he never had to apply for another church again. The churches would just come and, and talk to him and beg him and ask him to be their pastor. Now, first of all, that was just slightly annoying, but that's fine. What I also know is this, that this person had a mentor who was his first boss, who was a very successful pastor. And whenever churches were looking for new pastors, they would always go to his mentor and they would always say, do you have any suggestions? And guess who his mentor always said? I think you should ask this guy. And what was amazing as I thought about that whole conversation was that at no point did there seem to be any understanding that the way or a part of the way that this person got to where he was was because of the fact that there was somebody else who had surrounded him and who had helped him and encouraged him along the way. And and it seems to me that's not just pastors and churches where you see that happening. I could be wrong, but... I think we see it, you know, there is sometimes there's this sense of, well, everything I got, I just pulled myself up by the bootstrap. That's how I did it. Well, that's great. Except for here's something I've noticed. Oh, maybe I've shared this before. Over the last four and a half years here, one of the things that has struck me is this. We have a lot of kids who go off to college. That's great. We love that. And they come back. And oftentimes, they'll spend the summer or a year doing an internship. Which is great. And oftentimes these internships are like really good internships. And so I'll say to them, hey, this is great. How did you, how did you get that internship? Oh, well, you know, my, my mom works 
you know, for the company. Or, oh, you know, we've, we've been family friends with the, with the Smiths for a long time, and they knew I was coming back, and so I got something there. Or, or you know, yeah, yeah, you know, Mr. Terry, you know, he, you know he, he's lived in the neighborhood for years. We've known him. I grew up playing with his kids, and, and he helped me get this internship, which, let me be clear, I think that's great. In 10 years, I am going to be bringing Shaughnessy Deck to you all, asking you to give her an internship. There is nothing wrong with that. But what I also want you to know is that for some of them, it feels like they understand that that's a real blessing. And for others, I'm not sure if they actually understand just how fortunate they are that that, I am here to tell you, that does not always happen. And when you forget how many people it took to pour into you to get you to where you are today, you will inevitably begin to think way too highly of yourself. But not only that, it keeps you from understanding then, this is something Nebuchadnezzar struggled with, with understanding and caring about the oppressed or the poor. Because sometimes you can just think all you need to do is just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And we fail to, we fail to remember that when you don't have those built-in networks and others who can help you, it is much more difficult for you to succeed or flourish. There is a certain amount of humility that is needed and that only comes when you understand how others have poured into you. So, so perhaps I was thinking about this as a mini homework assignment. If you go to the all church brunch, and I don't even know why I have to use the word if. When you go to the, all, to the brunch right after this service, I want to encourage you, sit down with somebody you don't know. And secondly, I know this sounds lame, but do it anyways. Take the time to just say, here is one person who has poured into my life. And if you want to take it one step further, thank that person at some point this week and say, I want to thank you for the difference you have made. I can tell you this week, I began to think through a few of those people as I began to kind of work on this sermon. There is something about acknowledging the fact that that God created us and that we, God created a community for us to be thankful for. So humility, it seems to me, is a theme that we begin to see in this passage. The the humility to care for others even when you are confronting them with difficult truth. The humility, of course, to acknowledge that none of us have made ourselves. But then humility that is absolutely paramount if you are going to do what Nebuchadnezzar clearly struggles with doing. Which is admitting that he has not gotten it right which is repenting and being a willingness to confess those places in which he has failed, in which he has sinned. One of the interesting things about this particular passage is that it never tells us exactly what Nebuchadnezzar's response is after Daniel has interpreted the dream. There's there's all this information before it. There's all this information about the dream. But as soon as he interprets it, we hear nothing. For how long do we hear nothing? A year, 12 months. The only thing we know is it seems that not much has changed because it's after a year that he's standing up on his roof and talking about how wonderful everything is that he has done. And only then is he finally, does the dream come true. 
And then he becomes like this animal-like behavior, which is this very strange part of the passage. And he's, he's in this state, we are told, for seven times or seven seasons. And you know how long that is? Oh, we actually don't know. Trick question. We, have, we don't know for sure. Which I love because the reality is that for most of us, it varies pretty dramatically how long it would take us to actually admit the mistakes that we have made. And finally, we're told, he lifts his face up to heaven. And at that moment, it seems, that's the moment when he finally acknowledges that he is not God. He finally acknowledges his own shortcomings. Right? Only at that moment does he regain, it seems, his sanity. Which someone has said that, that, that the best way kind of to regain sanity is when you are able to actually see yourself as you truly are. So finally, at this point, he's able to see who it is that he is. Now, confession and repentance is something that we see throughout Scripture. It's something that we talk about with some regularity because, as we like to say, there are few places in our world and in our society where you will be encouraged to confess your shortfalls. But what we believe, we believe a couple things here. First of all, we believe that you were created in the image of God. And that means that you are beautiful. That means that you have been wonderfully and fearfully made, as the scriptures say. But the other part that the scriptures also talk about is the reality that we are also broken. And that it is with great frequency that we sin and we fall short. But it is hard for us to admit that. In fact, we spend a lot of energy trying to hide that. I would say we're almost like animals in the way that we try to act like we don't. Have you ever thought about yourself whenever you're in this place where someone says something that maybe you've done wrong? Or maybe you've been in a conversation where you had to confront somebody? I mean, the defensiveness is almost animal-like, right? And it can become so defensive that you just want to say, okay, just forget it. You know what? I I was just kidding. Don't worry about it. You're good. There is something within us that struggles with being able to acknowledge where we have sinned or where we have fallen short. And my guess is that all of us struggle with that. It is a slow process. A little while back now, um, I was, uh, I was in, a, in a short meeting with a staff member. And the staff member looked at me and, and said, you know, um, you remember how, you know, just not long ago at a staff meeting you you said, hey, if, if any of you, you know, I, I want you to know that if you, if you see, you know, the work that I'm doing and you think, hey, you know what, I, I think that you could probably maybe do a little bit better at this or something like that. To, 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 I wanted you to be free. You know, you said, you said, hey, come and be free to tell me that. And I remembered that I had told them that, but mostly I had told them that as an invitation for me then to tell them what they were doing wrong. Have you guys ever done that? I'm sure not. I'm sure not. So anyways, this person comes to me and says, you know what? So if that's true, and I was thinking, well, it's sort of true, okay, well, here's, here's a particular area that I think really that you could kind of, that you could kind of work on. And as the person continued, I, I, was, I was listening out of my left ear, but in my right ear, I was listening to myself, and man, I was talking really fast. Right? And what I was coming up with were all the reasons why what this person's saying was not really true. 
And clearly this person doesn't understand what it's like to be in my position. And clearly this person doesn't understand my perspective. And it was just worrying over here as I was listening on one side and coming up with all the great reasons. But I knew that I couldn't look overly defensive, animal-like. So I just said, thank you. And I appreciate that. And, and then I walked over uh, back to my office and I wept. No, I'm just kidding. But I did wrestle with it. And, and I'll be honest with you that over the time, as I've, over maybe, maybe two or three seasons now, I haven't gotten to seven seasons yet, I can see where there's some truth to what this person said. And so I'm, I've wrestled with that, and, and I will continue to wrestle with that over the next four seasons. But, but what I realized was, yeah, it is really hard to admit to have any kind of humility to say, I could be better at this. Clearly, I have messed up. I could, I could do things in a better way. It is a struggle for me. Am I alone in that? You guys. If I've ever heard an amen, it should have been right there. But as I wrestled with that and with this passage, and I thought about that particular incident even, it, it reminded me of this great truth. Which is that if we want to be shaped differently, if we want to, as we talk about, be shaped more and more like Jesus, right, then that's going to take a, an ample amount of humility. And one of the greatest ways for us to work on our humility is within a loving community. Because the way in which we are going to be able to hear those hard conversations is only when we know that the person who's telling us those things genuinely loves us and cares about us. And the only way that we are really going to become more and more humble is when we begin to depend and realize how much we need one another. And the only way that we are really going to be able to, it seems to me, be a people of humility is when we are surrounded by others who are also able to say, we are not perfect. We struggle just like you. But the more that we can be that sort of community, not a perfect community, but a witness to the reality that we are all broken, that we all fall short. It seems to me the more that we will be a community that those around us can look and say, what is different about these people? Because they seem to understand and have no fear of being able to say, this is who we are, this is what we struggle with. And yet there is a freedom that they have to then live with courage. My hope and my prayer is that this relationship between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar can be a sign to us of what is possible. And that just as Nebuchadnezzar began this whole chapter saying, this is a testimony of what God has done in my life. So too might we in humility and in community be able to testify in the seasons to come of how we have been changed because of what God has done in our lives. Amen? Let's pray. God, it is not easy for us to be honest. It is not easy for us to be honest with others or with ourselves. So we pray that you would give us the courage to do so. We pray that this community, Lord, would be one in which we feel the comfort and the security to be honest about our own struggles and to be able to hear those moments, Lord, when we have failed. Help us to be a people 
who are cultivated through our confession. That it might build us up as a people of humility and as a people who know how highly dependent we are upon you and upon one another. It's in your name we pray. Amen.